1207, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, Melissa, before you go, the iconic, it is a photograph that I, that I think is, is going to go down in history. There are certain photographs that instantly capture a, a, a time. Do you know what the one over the weekend is? Have you seen? I think it's the dog oh my lying gosh. in front of oh my George H.W. Bush's I, I will tell castle. you, that is, it, it's just, of course, uh, his service dog, Sully, I think everybody's seen it by now. It, it's the dog is just laying in front of the casket. It's just, it, it reminds me of a couple of things. First of all, I, I saw somebody had posted this note, and they're exactly right. We don't deserve dogs. Yeah. We, we just, we do not deserve dogs. I've been thinking about that since I saw it. But that's just the, it, 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 it's one of these photographs. And every once in a while, you have a photograph like this that just, it, it sticks in your mind. It will never leave you. And, of course, uh, right, the service dog, Sully, in front of the casket. That's, yeah. It's just, it has immediately become iconic. And, um, again, it, it goes back to the notion, and this comes from perspective of somebody. It's no secret. I'm a huge dog lover um, that we just... We humans do not deserve dogs, period. All right. We have a lot of ground to cover on today's program. 2.15, Packers President and CEO Mark Murphy will be addressing the media, answering a number of questions. We will take that. Um, We're going to be talking about the passing of George H.W. Bush. We're going to be talking about the special session of the legislature and a lot of other things as well. We are streaming the first segment of the program, as we always do, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. You can go there and you can check it out. We start off with the story that everybody has been talking about for, I don't know, going on the last 20 hours or so. After a particularly disappointing game yesterday, the Green Bay Packers announced that uh, they were firing the head coach, Mike McCarthy, in the middle of his 13th season. The decision, I think, surprised some people because while most folks figured that McCarthy was going to be gone at the end of the year, the fact that they fired him before the end of the season, I think, took a number of people by surprise. I actually think when you when you think it through, it ends up making a little bit of, of sense. Already, Mike McCarthy is being talked about to rejoin John Dorsey, who is the general manager um, at the Cleveland Browns. And already the speculation is that McCarthy is going to move um, over and will be coaching the Cleveland Browns next year. And interestingly, as an indication of how far the Packers franchise has fallen, lots of the talking heads and lots of the pundits think that uh, the Cleveland Browns um, are a – it's a much better coaching opportunity than the Green Bay Packers because if you take Aaron Rodgers out of the equation, person for person, the roster on the Cleveland Browns, a lot of people think, is a lot better than the roster on the Green Bay Packers. And even if you put Aaron Rodgers into the calculation, Aaron Rodgers is 35 years old. The Cleveland Browns have Baker Mayfield, rookie quarterback, who many think you know could go on to be one of the next stars in the NFL. All right, after I heard this news, I... I I was a little bit surprised in the timing, not surprised on the result of this. Here are a couple thoughts I had, and then we're going to open up the phone lines for a segment or two and allow you to weigh in your take, and we've had lots of experts on yesterday. We have lots of experts on this morning. I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this. All right, here, first of all, here, here is my belief. I think that Mike McCarthy does not lose his job if Mark Murphy, Murphy, the Packers president and CEO, had fired Ted Thompson, say, like three years ago, I, I think that what happened is that the team got old 
uh, the player quality went down. And, and candidly, I just don't, I think the cupboard was bare. The 2014 draft, it's one thing, it's one thing if you want to be, you know, into draft and, and develop. I, I get that. But that means you've got to draft players. The 2014 draft that Ted Thompson made, there's only two players left. The center, Corey Lindsley, and the, uh, and the wide receiver, Devontae Adams. That's it from that draft. The 2015 draft that Thompson had, there's nobody left. There's nobody on the Packers team that they drafted in 2015. And normally it, it takes two or three years before you can really find out whether players are going to be able to play or not. There is nobody left. I mean, there's the Jake Ryan, the fourth round pick. He's on injured reserve. I mean, Ted Thompson had really, really bad drafts. And I think you can actually go back a number of years before that. So I think part of the problem that McCarthy had over the years, not getting back to the Super Bowl and not being able to win, is candidly, I just don't think he had a lot of talent. He had Aaron Rodgers in his prime, and that allowed them to perhaps mask some of the other flaws that ended up getting exposed um, in the playoffs and things like that. So, I mean, candidly, I think, number one, I don't know that McCarthy, I think, learned, forgot how to coach. I think the teams and the players that he was coaching got progressively, progressively worse. And as a result, you, you end up where you are now. I'm not sure there's any coach that could have done better. That's observation number one. Observation two, there's a number of people who think that Aaron Rodgers looks really bad in this because the implication is that Rodgers tanked it because he wanted to try to get McCarthy fired. I don't know if that's the case, but I, I do have a couple observations on that. Aaron Rodgers is not playing at the level that we are used to see him playing at. He's underthrowing passes. He's overthrowing passes. He looks like he's blaming everybody else that's out there. There's, there's three, one of three explanations for that. Number one is that Rodgers is injured to an extent that maybe, you know, that knee is still bothering. That's number one. Number two is that Rodgers did, in fact, go in the tank and was trying to get McCarthy fired, or at least not playing as hard as he possibly could. Or number three, it could be that he's getting old. It could be that maybe he's starting to hit that wall, and he's not the premier quarterback that he was. Now, of those three options, I think that last one is probably the scariest one, given the fact that the Packers have all this money invested in him. But clearly there was something going on with Aaron Rodgers as well. And any new coach who comes in is going to have to realize that this is Aaron Rodgers' team. And you got to wonder, you know, what, what does Aaron Rodgers have left in the tank? Is he hurt? Um, if he doesn't buy into the system, is he going to do what he did if you think that maybe he was tanking it? Or, you know, you've got all this money tied up in a quarterback whose best days might be behind him. I don't know what those answers are, but it's going to be a problem for the new coach. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And one final thought on this. I, I do think, as I've said before, there, there is a there, there is a, a time. There's a reason why in professional sports it's unusual for coaches or managers to stay year after year after year. And that's because unlike in college sports where the players rotate in and out, you know, in professional sports, the, the, the players are there, and I think they tune out coaches after a while. And so I think everybody has their seasons. There are exceptions. Bill Belichick is an exception. But in general, there appears to be, you know, a time, and sometimes people just wear out their welcome. I don't have anything bad to say about Mike McCarthy. I think it was time for him to go. What do you think about the decision, and, and what led up to it? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Greg in Pleasant Prairie. Greg, good afternoon. 
Hi, Jeff. First of all, in terms of Ted Thompson, you are right on the button. The guy should have been gone years ago. However, Ted Thompson had a system for drafting people and, uh, you know, evaluating talent. And Mike McCarthy had a system of offense. Neither one of them were willing to change. And so both systems became antiquated and obsolete. Mike McCarthy, unlike Urban Meyer in Ohio State, tried to make the players fit his system rather than, like if I lose my starting quarterback like they did at Mm -hmm. Ohio State, I change my system to fit the players. There's no doubt that the Packers, look at holes. They got holes at linebacker. They got, and one of the things that always made me furious with Ted Thompson is he did not value his offensive and defensive front linemen. He just didn't. Yeah, right. He he wouldn't pay for guards. He he'd let guard after guard after guard go. And look at the guards they got now. They get knocked. I mean, how many times Aaron Rodgers doesn't have time to throw? Because Lane Taylor and uh, the other guy, they get knocked on their butt and they're in the backfield. I right. mean, it's just, no, it's ridiculous. No, thanks for, no, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think that the quality of the team, the players went downhill. I mean, you can see that in the progression of the records. They were 13 and 3, then 10 and 6, and then 10 and 6, and then the bottom, then, you know, they, they struggle after Aaron Rodgers gets hurt last year, and then people want to write it off as an aberration, and then they come back and they're awful this year. But I mean, I do think that you can trace that also to, a lack of talent. Now, maybe Mike McCarthy should have adapted, but the, the team, person for person, just isn't as strong as it was four or five years ago. Here's a text. Amen, Jeff. The quality of players drafted by Thompson since 2011 is very low. A class example of the recent Ted Thompson drafts is passing on T.J. Watt, trading down to draft for Kevin King. Um, you know, how has that move worked out? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. All right, your reaction to the firing of. Mike McCarthy, I think he was a good guy. I think it was probably time for him to go, but I don't know that he could have done much better given the hand that he was dealt. We continue the conversation in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. And again, we're live streaming facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ 1218. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, live streaming, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Your reaction to the firing of Mike McCarthy? I I think he was a good guy. I I think he he made, I have a text here that correctly says that, Jeff, he made a lot of boneheaded decisions over the years. And yes, there's no question he did that. But I, I think the biggest problem in the Packers' decline is that, what you saw is that the, the, the t- caliber of the players has been going downhill dramatically, and that's because Ted Thompson, for years and years and years, stubbornly held on to this draft and develop philosophy, which is great, but if, if your drafts turn out to be busts, sooner or later, the good players start to age, and, and then you know, you're know you left with nothing. You don't keep the best of your players, you don't bring in free agents, and you, you start missing on the draft picks, and pretty soon you end up at 4-7-1, and one, losing to Arizona at Lambeau Field. Let's talk to Jeff on the south side. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, how you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Well, on a few of those things. I think that uh, Aaron Rodgers not only had a bad season, he's had uh, a, a, not a great one. The other thing is age. I don't know if the age is catching up to him. I, that's hard to say right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, I think Mark Murphy and the whole entire uh, coaching staff should be fired. Uh, uh, not just Mike, but my, the whole coaching staff. Tackling bad, offense is bad. I mean, the whole 
The whole entire staff should be gone. Well, I, I mean, no, thanks. Well, I, I think that, you know, who, who knows? I, I, I don't think either. I don't think anybody in the organization right now is going to move on to be the head coach. Now, they might decide to keep the defensive coordinator or something. That That's a that's a different thing. But bottom line is you need better talent. I mean, that that's the that's the truth. And I mean, I had thought of this. till I was reading something a week or two ago that said bottom line is. The Cleveland job is actually more attractive than the Packers job because, again, putting Aaron Rodgers, taking him out of the equation, other than that, up and down the roster, Cleveland has a lot better players. And I guess that's the function of, you know, having lots of high draft picks over the years. But that tells you what at least people who know what they're talking about think about the Packers roster up and down. 414-799-1620. Steve in Oshkosh. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. How are you doing? Real well, thank you, sir. What do you think? Well, you know, I like Mike McCarthy. I think he was a good coach, but I'm going to agree with you 100%. This needs to be hung around the neck of Ted Thompson and the inability of Mark Murphy to make a change five years ago. Right. Um, You had made a comment about, well, McCarthy could have worked around it. Show me an organization that's successful that you work around lack of talent. doesn't happen. Right, yeah, and sooner or later it catches up with you. You you have, I mean, I think Aaron Rodgers in his prime, and maybe he's still in his prime, people can argue that, but I think he covered up for a lot of other problems because he was so good. But, you know, you can only do that for so long before it catches up with you. Yeah, and, and to think that Aaron Rodgers is tanking this thing on purpose, for those individuals who say that, what reality are they living in? Okay, so what do you think? I mean, Rodgers is having a subpar season. What do you... I, I mean, I think he is. I think most people would believe that. What do you attribute that to, just that there's not the personnel around him? And he's been hurt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those two factors alone will have a huge impact on his ability to be an MVP quarterback. And I go back to the success, and, you know, I don't necessarily like their style, but I think you can count five Super Bowls that Bill Belichick has coached and I think four or five of them have been at the helm with uh, Tom Brady as quarterback. Yep. yep. So yep. you've got 30-plus years of Hall of Fame quarterbacking. You have two Super Bowls. Right. Something wrong there. Um, no, th- thanks for calling. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think Bill Belichick has been now it's interesting because you look at the coaches that coached under bill belichick there's nobody that's been able to duplicate his kind of success but at the same time he, he's been a magic guy when it comes to all right taking the draft picks but then also being able to go out and find the free agents that can come in and contribute for a year or two and then you ended up moving them on the packers did not do that and you find out where they are now ken and grafton ken here on wtmj hello else ken yeah, hi Ken. Hey, how you doing? Real well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, the biggest the biggest issue I have is that it uh, the coach is the coach. You got to have talent, and the talent that people think that they've got, you have to have exceptional talent to even be competitive. And the draft, as as you've pointed out in the discussion that you've had, is significantly uh, subpar, and nobody's done anything about it and they've made bad drafts year after year after year and now it's paid the price. Um, okay. yeah, and it, and it's and it and 
it's it's not a has McCarthy made mistakes? Yes, all the coaches make mistakes. But if you don't have the talent to overcome it, it's just it's going to catch up to you at some point in time. Absolutely, and and there's that's the you know you you can you you can really coach at lower levels, you know, high school and even college, and win with subpar talent because you can get an energy. But when you got this kind of money in front of folks, and they're still getting paid good bucks, and they play mediocre football. Uh, they're not going to get any better, and it's just it's not, it's very difficult to motivate people that are making the kind of money that they're making yeah. and not producing. Um, it takes a rare athlete to do that. Yeah, no, thanks to call, and I, and I think I mean I do think one of the things that happens is I think people people tune it out. Going back to what I was saying earlier, you know, if you're coaching in college, all right, you you've got at most you've got the players for four years maybe less so it's a finite amount of time in the pros what happens is the the athletes yes i know there's turnover but i think the long-term athletes i mean after if after four or five or six years you, you've heard it all and i think the type the type of stuff gets stale which is why the shelf life i think is so short for basketball managers and nba coaches and uh, nfl head coaches and i understand there's some exceptions to that i I get it but in general you look at the tenure and even successful coaches well you know you're successful one year and two years later you're you're gone bottom line is well i think i think it's complicated i don't think people should be happy that mike mccarthy lost his job i think it was the right decision but i think the problems go well beyond mike mccarthy i don't think he suddenly forgot how to to be a good coach and again i understand some bonehead bonehead coaching decisions and some like unbelievable plays for example you know you're, you're ahead with five minutes left in Seattle. You, all you got to do is hold on. You've got a lead of, what, 12 or 13 points or whatever that is, and you're going to the Super Bowl, and you can't do that. So, I mean, I, I understand that there's been some bonehead plays and some bad coaching and the, what the Bostwick guy who goes up and you know tries to get the onside kick and fumbles it. I mean, there, there's been some just just really, really bad plays that are out there, and I understand all that. But I think Mike McCarthy is a pretty good coach, and I think he he deserves a lot of credit, and I think people should wish him well. And now the question is, where do you go from here? And I hope they do ask Mark Mark Murphy some questions about, hey, do you take any responsibility for this? And maybe did is did you let the cupboard get bare by letting Ted Thompson stick around too long? Just asking. Twelve twenty-eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Thanks for participating on Facebook Live. It's 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The Packers started their stretch of much must-win games with a home dud against the Cardinals, and that led to Mike McCarthy's dismissal. So what now? That's an interesting question. What now? Greg Matzik breaks it all down on Sports Central starting this evening at 6.07. Be sure to tune that in. Well, I mean, there, there was some good news that came out of yesterday. So, um, my My stepdaughter, her and her husband, they were at the game. We had a chance to go and we didn't go. So I mean, it just—it's kind of like, well, Packers games are always fun, but can you imagine sitting out in that? I'm looking at Gru who's producing the show today, and always—I mean, sitting out in the cold rain and the snow and the miserable conditions and watching a dog game like that. Nah, I think that was one best best experienced from your your living room. I'm just kind of saying. All right, the news over the weekend—tragic um, news. Perhaps not unexpected. I mean, the reports are that uh, President George H.W. Bush, the 41st president of the United States, passed away at the age of 94. His, his wife, Barbara, had passed away earlier this year. President Bush, a, a long, distinguished career. He served in Congress. 
He was the director of the CIA. He was the vice president under President Reagan during the Reagan Revolution from 1980 to 1988. He was a one-term president from 1988 to 1992, losing to Bill Clinton in the 1992 election. Thank you, Ross Perot. Ross Perot running as a third-party candidate, siphoned off enough votes that led to Bill Clinton winning, becoming the plurality president. Um, in, in defeat, I think President Bush showed that the class that, that he had i think it's it's indicative of the fact that you know president bush remained a a very very i, I don't know a close friend but a, a friendly terms with with bill clinton of course you know his son george bush and then with barack obama i mean i think you know when you start to talk about the different accolades that the president george bush received the, the the phrases that you hear are honorable gracious and decent i had an opportunity to meet president bush president george h w bush twice um i was in the us attorney's office back in the day when he was the president and then the, the vice president before that i met him once as vice president once during his term of president and i was i i will tell you just it's one of those things where just even in a in a brief contact for a couple minutes or something like that, you you get a sense of of a measure of a person. And again, all these terms that you hear, honorable, gracious, and decent, I, I think that uh, that's how I would have described President Bush. I think his I think his post presidency years were an epitome of class. I, I don't I think while I'm sure losing the presidential election to President Bill Clinton in 1992 was a hard thing to do. I never got the sense that he was extremely bitter about that. I think I'm sure he was incredibly proud when his son was elected in 2000. But at the same time, I I don't get the idea that he was somebody who, you know, was trying to micromanage that presidency. I think President Bush was just sort of a classic example of an extremely classy man who loved his country dearly, who cared very much for his country and and appreciated what his role and what the role of an ex-president should be. You didn't see George H.W. Bush traveling all around the country trying to criticize Barack Obama or criticize Bill Clinton. You, you saw him, I mean, settle into that role of, of a senior statesman. And I, I think he did an admirable job of that. The Times... They have changed. There's no question about it. And I understand some people would, you know, point a finger towards President Trump. Oh, it's all because of President Trump. You know, he, he's increased the venom. It's, it's really not. I mean, we've been leading going in this direction for, you know, a, a number of years. You can go back to 1994 and the Republican Revolution and then the battles between, you know, Bill Clinton and between the Republican Congress. You, you saw this, I think, after well after 9/11 when president bush george bush made the decision to invade iraq you you saw the what i think was an unhinged reaction from the left and for everybody who says oh that all this hate and this vitriol it, it's it's all an age of trump eh, it it's not you you have a short memory i mean you saw what the left ended up doing people would say you saw that from the right when barack obama took over but there's no question that we are not a kindler, gentler nation. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is there a place for a politician like like George H.W. Bush 
in America in 2018. Somebody who, I don't know, isn't isn't out there with the sort of scorched earth philosophy of, hey, we, we've got to win at all costs. Who isn't out there with the caustic, well, my, my opposition, the people who are on the other side of the issue, they're, they're evil, they're terrible, they're horrible human beings. I mean, is there a place for somebody like George H.W. Bush or an, an incarnation moving forward, or have we moved past that? Is that genie out of the bottle on both the left and the right? And can we ever go back? And do we want to go back? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1242. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1244, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Here's a text. I met the then former President Bush when he was in the Florida Keys on one of his many fishing trips. He treated us local anglers with um, familiarity and appreciation, an exemplary person, both privately and publicly. Yes, there are many leaders that still behave with decency. Vice President Mike Pence and both Wisconsin Senators, Tammy Baldwin and Ron Johnson, along with Paul Ryan, seem committed to their party's agendas, yet remain gentle and courteous people. Uh, Something to be said about that. Let's see another text. Bush 41 is an exemplary leader and a person in every regard. Today, there are many leaders that still behave with decency as well. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, let's start with Doug in McGuanago. Doug, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Doug. Um, I gotta say no. Uh, You know, one, I I don't think Bush the Younger was a, a cruel or i mean he was nowhere near as venomous as trump uh he doesn't get credit for that right. i think he was pretty pretty reserved no i do too matter of fact i i think to, to your point i think that he was very reserved i think that what you saw for everybody on the left who says oh the, the politics of hatred it, it, it all comes you know it's all brought about by trump people don't people don't remember 2003 and 2004 and the vitriol and the absolute hate that was directed at, at president george bush you know after the iraq invasion i mean if you want to talk about hate there was a lot of hate going on i guess that's my point well, you see it from both sides there was there was a lot of hate going on because there was a feeling, and my father always felt that the election was stolen. Right. That he stole the the Supreme Court stole the election for him. Right. So I, I but I, I just think that one thing that George Bush taught Republicans was don't make a deal with the Democrats because on that taxes where he raised taxes there was a deal on the table essentially that the Democrats promised to cut spending. He, he mm-hmm. said, "I will raise taxes." As long as you promise to cut spending, because they had complete control of Congress. Right. And they broke the word. And they also said they wouldn't use it against him in the election. Right. Well, and, remember the Democratic prime, or the Democratic uh, convention, Ann Richards going, poor George. Right. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. Right, exactly. So, the, the, whole, the whole promise of, I mean, thanks to call, of, of read my lips no new taxes, and then um, he, he went along and, and imposed the new taxes, and it ended up costing him the race. No, but I, I see. I don't know that that's. I don't know that that's necessarily the, the the lesson of that. I mean, sometimes 
you have to be willing to work with people to get along. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan is the classic example of that. I mean, Ronald Reagan was somebody who w- was able to have a principled approach on things, but yet still it, it wasn't the hatred. You didn't get the idea that Ronald Reagan, you know, hated the opposition. You know, Ronald Reagan had various feelings that he wanted to advance. He had certain principles that he wanted to advance and push for, but but there wasn't that hatred. And I felt that same way about President Bush. I, I think I'm not trying to be naive here. And that's why I point out that there's always been incredible vitriol. There, there, there has. And I, I think, you know, most recently, you know, you can look back and you can say, OK, maybe it started it started during the Clinton years because Bill Clinton, who might have been a, you know, hail well-met fellow. I mean, the people around Clinton were, were vicious fighters and the people on the Republican side were vicious fighters as well. And I think you had that start. Country came together, I think, for a while under George Bush, and then after the Iraq invasion, and because you are exactly correct, there's a lot of people who thought, well, the Bushes stole this race, Al Gore should really be the president, and was were unwilling to move on. You had a lot of that hatred that was developed there, and it's been pretty much going on. And I admit that I think President Trump has raised it to an art form. I, I do think that there are perhaps, and maybe this is a time to to reflect. I, I do think that there are some lessons out there. See, I think you can be a principled liberal without believing, or you should be able to be a principled liberal without believing that all conservatives are evil or all conservatives are sexist or all conservatives are like Hitler. I mean, you, you should be able to do that. And unfortunately, I, I, you should see some of the emails I get. It's it's just it's like okay, well, if we are a liberal, well, you know, we're we're just so morally superior, and and you've got to be evil, or you've got to be stupid, or you've got to be a Nazi. You get that, and I concede, you you get the flip side as well. You know, you get the folks who just really love the Donald Trump rhetoric, and they love the idea of here, let's let's insult people. Um, like John McCain. Oh, my idea of war heroes is people who don't get shot down. Let's come up with all the nicknames for people, the lion Ted or the cheating, whatever. Oh, you, you, you see that on, on both sides. And I, I really do think that there is going to be a point, and I don't know if it's going to be this year or next year or in 2020 or in 2022 or in 2024, but I, I really do think that there is going to be some point in time where the the American public kind of rises up and says enough is enough. We we don't want to be we we don't want to be held captive by the hate left. We don't want to be held captive by the the mean right. And and what we want to try to do is understand that we can disagree about things, but we can disagree about things based on on our principles without necessarily the idea of oh gee if you believe something differently than me you you have to be evil or you have to be hateful or you have to be sexist or you have to be a Nazi. I, I think you know that's where we've got to come to, and we're a ways away from that. At some point in time, I think the pendulum's going to swing back. I don't know when it's going to be, but I think maybe there's a lot of lessons in not just the four-year presidency of President George H.W. Bush, but also the life of President George H.W. Bush that maybe everybody could learn a little bit about. Just saying. 1251, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1253, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, I guess this is new to me. Rue's producing the show today and always. Did you know about the, these Cameo platforms? Have you heard about this before? Okay, Cameo, it's a platform 
where fans can book personalized video shout-outs from their favorite celebrities. So, you know, if you if if somebody wants, I, I want a video shout-out from Jeff Wagner's producer, Gru, and Gru signs up, what happens is Gru sets what his price is, and Cameo takes a chunk of it as well, and then somebody sends sends the text of what they would like Gru to say, and, and he says it, and they send it out. You can do it for to wish your friend a happy birthday, to roast your buddy, to, to do you know whatever you want to do. And again, celebrities sign up. Brett Favre is one of the celebrities that apparently participates in this, and Favre gets $500 for every cameo that he does. I don't know what it costs to, to get Brett Favre to do it, but Favre gets $500 a piece out of this. Well, I mean, the story is a couple weeks ago, apparently what happened is this this anti-Semitic group of white supremacists decided that they want to they want to get Brett Favre to do a shout out. So what they do is they they send the text through Cameo. It gets to Brett Favre and, and he goes through it. Brett Favre here with a shout out to the Handsome Truth and the GDL boys. You guys are patriots in my eyes. And then then he goes on for another couple sentences. I'm not going to read it, but it, what it is, it's sort of this. It's not sort of. It's this this some of the, the coded kind of language that some of these hate groups have um, to communicate. You know, with with their members, you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you were familiar with it. So far, if he gets this, he gets paid five hundred dollars. He reads it, he sends the thing off the video, and then the group gets it and they put it up all over YouTube and stuff. And here you have Brett Favre doing this shout out and speaking in this coded anti-Semitic terms of this 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 hate group that's out there. So Favre finds out about it, and then you know he immediately distances himself. He says he's sickened as you know that he was duped by this. Cameo says we didn't pick this up either. You know we we obviously we screen for stuff, but you know we didn't know this kind of thing. And Favre says I didn't know this kind of thing. And clearly, I think Favre is. I mean, I I believe him. I don't think there's any question about it. He gets paid five hundred dollars. My guess is they just sit there and and, and they read the, they read whatever they're told to read, and it seems like it's okay. Hey, he's doing this particular shout out, and so now it's this very embarrassing thing. Favre says he's going to donate the five hundred dollars he got to some you know to to causes that that fight these sort of hate groups. It, it's all very well and good, and I'm clearly I think he was duped. There's a couple other people who have apparently been duped as well by this and all right it i i don't i don't think less of brett Favre for doing this but you know what i think the overriding issue here is that really kind of struck me brett Favre is doing something like this for 500 bucks i I mean it's i i mean i i understand i understand that players you know show up and they sign their autographs and that's that's how you know you you make your money and things like that and i'm a free enterprise guy i mean i'm a capitalist and i don't I, I understand that people show up at the autograph shows and they sign up for these things and stuff. But I guess when I, <laughs> that was the first thing that struck me was that, all right, here you have one of the greatest quarterbacks of, of all time who probably made more money than he can spend. I mean, Brett Favre's a pretty simple, straightforward guy. You know, he's hanging back in Kilman, Mississippi, you know, hunting and fishing and whatever. He, he made more money than he can possibly ever spend and that he's, He's doing these videos for five hundred bucks. <laughs> that's what that's what kind of struck me about this. That for five hundred bucks you can get Brett Favre to do you know whatever sort of shout out that you want to do, and I, I guess maybe that's 
no worse than showing up at like the autograph signing things. But somehow it was kind of like, gee, Brett, I mean, really, that's that's what it's come to. And I understand Brett Favre has been great at marketing himself. And if you watch late night TV over the years, you can see him, you know, shilling for like the the knee bands and all those type of things. But, you know, here, here you've got a guy who, again, I mean, just kind of wonder – what it is that would inspire people, and I guess maybe it is, it's kind of like the $500, but I, you would think, I don't know, to get Brett Favre to do your shout out, you would think that he should be charging just a, a lot more than $500 for a personal shout out. And my guess is that after the events of the last week or so, my guess is that moving forward, if he continues to do this, he will continue. He will start charging a lot more than 500 bucks a piece for, for doing these types of shout outs. Who would have, who would have thought that you could get birthday greetings in a video or uh, get, you know, be, have your friend roasted by a celebrity? And to get Brett Favre, it's only $500. To get Dennis Rodman, it's 25 bucks, which is probably even more pathetic than, than that. At least, at least Favre is getting 500 just saying. When we come back, I want to talk about the extraordinary session of the state legislature, including one thing that I don't think is such a bad idea at all, racing returns to the Milwaukee Mile and lots more. Don't go anywhere. 1250 HF Wagner, WTMJ. It's 108, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. We will be bringing you the Mark Murphy Press Conference 145-ish or so. As soon as that kicks off, we'll bring it to you. Of course, uh, Murphy, I'm sure, will be talking about the decision to fire uh, Mike McCarthy. In addition, I'm sure he'll be talking about where the coaching search goes from now. The, The legislature is going to be coming back into session sometime this week to to try to accomplish various things. This is a lame duck legislative session. The history of that is really kind of interesting. It actually goes back to phrases that were used in Great Britain 150 years ago. But essentially that means that you have a, a legislature that is going to be leaving office at the end of the year. So this is their last session. You have many, many, many of the same legislators who have been reelected or weren't up for reelection, so they'll be returning, but there'll be some people that are departing. In Wisconsin, the, the big development, of course, is that you have a change in the executive branch. Scott Walker was defeated by 20-some thousand votes, um, in his race to be reelected governor by Tony Evers. So you're going to have a change in the governorship. Oftentimes, lame duck sessions are not a big deal because, for example, if Governor Walker had been reelected, so he would continue to be making those decisions, he would just, you know, sign up for another four year term, and the legislature. Um, remains in Republican control, well, all right, it doesn't make much difference whether you do something in December or whether you do something in January. You you have, it's going to get done. You have most of the same people who will be making that decision. This is, of course, different because, you know, you have a change in administration. So you have a Democrat, Tony Evers, who's going to be coming in. As I have said often, and I understand, I, I break with some of my conservative colleagues on this. I think you need to be really careful about what you do in this type of lame duck situation. The Democrats, you people forget about this, but when Jim Doyle was leaving office, before Scott Walker came in, Democrats in the legislature tried to rush through a bunch of union contracts 
And the idea was, well, let okay, Scott Walker is going to look at these contracts with public employees a lot differently than Jim Doyle did. Let's try to rush a number of these contracts through the legislature, get Doyle to sign them, and then that will limit the ability of the incoming governor to deal with these public employee unions. There was an effort to do that, and at the time, I I was denouncing it quite a bit. It, It ended up going nowhere. Because I said, look, this isn't this isn't the right decision. It's not right for you know Democrats to try to rush something through, knowing that they're not going to be able to do it after Scott Walker takes over. Well, again, I I think you have to be consistent on these things, and that's why I, I a lot of this legislation, which might be aimed at curbing the power of the governor, um, I I think. I think Republicans should tread lightly. And then there's some ideas which are just stone-cold bad ideas. One of the things that's being kicked around is moving the presidential primary from April until March of 2020. The way it stands now is you've got, for the nonpartisan races, you've got a primary in February, and then you've got the general election in April. This would be the mayor races, the county executive races, judicial races, including a state Supreme Court race. Right now, those, the elections to decide who ultimately wins is scheduled for April. And the Wisconsin presidential primary is scheduled for April as well. This legislature is thinking of moving moving the presidential primary from April until March. All right. So why is that a bad idea? Well, okay, I think it's a bad idea because it's going to cost a lot of money. The latest estimate that's out there is it's going to cost $6 million. That's ridiculous. That, that's just whoever is saying that, I, I think it, it's ridiculous. It, there's no way it could cost six million dollars to have that election, that one election moved up. But but it's going to cost money. And if it, whether, I don't care if it's six million or one million or two million, that that's that's a lot of taxpayer dollars. Now, you can make an argument as to why it might make sense to move a presidential primary up. The biggest argument is that a lot of times by the time April rolls around, what happens is because the the presidential primary season is so compact, by the time April rolls around, the Wisconsin presidential primary is pretty much of an afterthought. That that could be the argument. The nominee is pretty much decided. So if you wanted to get more attention for Wisconsin and have more relevance, well, okay, you move it up to March. You move it sooner. There is an argument you could make for that. And no question about it. But here's the deal. And I don't think Republicans are even being subtle about this. The reason that they're talking about moving the presidential primary up to March, spending millions of dollars to have a separate election, is because they think it might give conservative Supreme Court, state Supreme Court Justice Dan Kelly, a better opportunity to be elected. He's on the ballot. And the idea is, well, gee, if there's a big Democratic primary for president in April, there's going to be an abnormally large Democrat turnout, and they will tend to vote against the conservative Supreme Court justice. All right, may- maybe that's true. My general experience has been when, when people either on the left or the right try to kind of manipulate the systems like this, it, it almost always backfires because you don't know what the electorate's going to look like a year and a half from now. You can think these things through, you can game plan them, but, but they don't necessarily work out that way. Now, look, I think you can have 
you can have an intelligent and principled conversation about, you know, does it make more sense to have the primary, the presidential primary in March, where, where it means Wisconsin might have more relevance? All right, I think that's a fair observation to have. But I don't think Republicans should be rushing that through. If if this is an idea, maybe you've got Tony Evers as the governor who says, yeah, you know, I'm a Democrat. I think this would be great. We will have Wisconsin will have more of a say in choosing who the Democratic candidate is going to be in 2020. And we're on board. But but you need to have it, I think, again, with the discussion of, you know, what do people, what do Republicans think about it? What do Democrats think about it? If the Republicans were to do this, I think they would make this an issue in Justice Kelly's election campaign. I just think it's it's a bad thing to do. I understand the idea that maybe we can get a little bit of a political advantage, but like I said a minute ago, lots of times when people do stuff like that, it, it tends to not work out anyhow because the dynamic changes so i mean that's an example of of something that i think should not be done in a lame duck session there is one thing that they are considering to do considering doing with regard to elections which i think might have some merit i'm going to explain it to you and then we're going to discuss stick around it's 115 jeff wagner wtmj 118, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, so I I don't think much about trying to jam stuff through during lame duck sessions where there's going to be a big change um, come January. In this case, the big change is Governor Walker is leaving. Tony Evers is going to become the governor. I I just I think you got to be really careful about that. And and more often than not, it, it backfires. There is one thing that they are considering doing, though, which I, I don't know that I think it is so much of a, oh, something new designed to burden the Evers administration, but it's rather something that's designed to, I don't know, follow up and perhaps clarify something else that they did. All right. It has to do with early voting. Under the law, now follow me here, under the law in Wisconsin, the statutes, legislature passed and Governor Walker signed a couple years ago, signed a, a bill which limited early voting to weekdays during the two full weeks before elections. So in other words, you, you couldn't, Milwaukee couldn't open up the polls six six weeks ahead of time. And they couldn't, you know, open up the polls on Saturdays and Sundays. There's a federal judge in Madison, who um, has handled a lot of these matters, he was an Obama appointee back in 2014, he struck this down. He said, oh, this is, this is racist. It's racist to put limits on early voting. Now, I think this decision by Judge Peterson makes absolutely no sense. It's on appeal to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, and the case has been hanging fire. It was argued like in April of 2017. Nobody knows for sure why it's taken so long to get a decision, and why um, why it's taken so long to get a decision, what the hang-up might be. But the law on the books says early voting limited to two weeks before the election and, and not on weekends. And again, this federal judge out of Madison says, well, this strikes me as being racist. He struck it down. I would think that the Seventh Circuit should reverse this. I think the judge, in my opinion, is wrong. If the case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court, I would imagine the Supreme Court would reverse it. But right now, that law is is on hold. And I will say this. See, it makes no sense to me what we do in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, 
the idea that polling places can be open for different lengths of time in different municipalities. Again, this just doesn't strike me as being right. On election day, state law says polls open up at 7 o'clock, they close at 8. We don't have variations. We don't say, City of Milwaukee, you can open up at 6 and you can hold them open till 10. We, we don't do that. We have standardized election times. But when it comes to early voting, we don't. We say to Milwaukee, all right, if you want to open up six weeks beforehand and you've got the resources to do it, you can. Other other communities that don't have the resources, they're not able to do it. This just makes no sense to me. I think there should be uniform laws across the state as to when polling places are open for early voting. And again, maybe maybe the right number is six weeks, not two weeks. But that's something that the legislature can decide. Well, in any event, Again, that law is on hold. One of the things that they are looking to do is to modify the law in advance of the Seventh Circuit ruling. And one of the things that they are considering doing is, again, trying to standardize the elections. The new proposal is polling places can only be open for two weeks before the election, but they can be open on Saturdays because that was one of the arguments that was made as to why this proposal is so racist, because lots of people in urban areas like to vote on Saturdays. So by saying you can't vote on Saturday, what you have effectively done is you've disenfranchised all sorts of people of color. That argument makes no sense to me, but I do think that standardization is is fair. I think the federal judge is wrong. By making this modification of the law, what they're trying to do is perhaps make the law more palatable as far as restrictions. But let's talk about the basic concept. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, I have no problem with, with early voting. I, I don't. Sometimes I early vote. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. But is it unreasonable to have standard hours for early voting? Now, maybe you think two weeks is too short. Maybe you think it should be, you know, a month and a half. I I don't know. But shouldn't the legislature have a right to say, all right, all polling places for statewide elections are going to be open for the same period of time. And Milwaukee can't be open for six weeks before the election, and Dane County can't be open for six weeks, and then, say, Waukesha, because they don't have the personnel or the money, they can only, they're only going to be open for a, a week. It's this hodgepodge that makes no sense to me. 414-799-1620. And to the extent you can clarify this and come up with a modified law that might have greater chance of passing constitutional muster, even though, again, I think this federal judge in Madison is wrong, in my opinion, on this, right? To the extent that you're trying to clarify and tinker with an existing law to make it more likely to pass constitutional muster, that's one that I think I might be inclined to take a shot at in the special session. 414-799-1620. What do you think? 124, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When it comes to early voting, I, I think 
the legislature was absolutely right in trying to set standard standard times that polls should be open. The idea that Milwaukee allows you to early vote in person six months, uh, six weeks ahead, and they're open six days a week or whatever, and maybe in a smaller community, for example, one that tends to be more Republican, they don't have the money or they don't have the resources, so they can only be open for early voting for the week beforehand. For, th- that just strikes me as being wrong. Now, again, I think... I think the former law is constitutional and ultimately will be upheld, but the legislature right now is trying to tinker with it. Doesn't this make sense to have standard hours? Let's start with Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, I was just telling your screener, uh, instead of worrying about early voting and all this fooling around like that, why don't you just have voting on a weekday, uh, rather on a weekend, such as Sunday, like they do in many countries in Europe, and instead of uh, a work day like Tuesday, uh, the idea that or well, you know, some some places also make it a national holiday. Absolutely. Why couldn't you do that? Well, I mean, thanks. You you could. I mean, you 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 could do something like that. That would sort of you'd, you'd need probably. I mean, you need to do that on the federal level as well. I don't. I don't know that that would increase participation. And, and don't get me wrong, I'm not against early voting. I mean, I, I think the reality is it makes it easier for people to do, to, it makes it easier for people to vote. I just think that the way the system is set up now, it allows some communities to gain, especially communities with more resources, to game the system. Um, and that's why I think it needs to be standard. Now, again, you can argue what that standard should be. Should it be six weeks? Should it be two weeks? Should it be three weeks? All right, I, I, th- that's something for reasonable people to argue about. The legislature has said that standard should be two weeks. I don't think that that's unconstitutional. And like I say, I hope the Seventh Circuit overrules the Dane County, the federal judge out in Madison, who I believe is wrong in this regard. But I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to standardize things. Let's talk to Sam and McHenry. Sam, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, Jeff, why don't we just make it a whole year? <laughs> right. I mean- yeah, right. Yeah. Or, or the day, or the, I mean, as soon as the primary election is completed, boom, you know, starting right that next morning, you can vote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that would be the extreme, of course. But just to make the overall point, this is just way out of line. And you could probably make an argument that it might be one of the reasons why Evers actually just barely squeaked across the line here. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. having said that, too, leads me into my next point. You know, a lot of what's going on, I think, in your legislature mm-hmm. has to do with the fact of what Walker was put through when he was first elected, you know, with the recall and people climbing through the windows of the Capitol and the protesting, and, of course, your prosecutor up there in Milwaukee that mm-hmm. went out of his way to just destroy everybody around, you know. Right, with the whole John Doe stuff, sure. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know. Is there something called payback? I don't know. I'll let the experts figure that one out. But, you know, I think that's what's motivating these guys, you know. Jim Doyle really had the state in a complete mess. You were just, you know, you were going down the same road, Illinois and California. Right, well, Sam, I, I want to cut you off. I'm sorry. I, just, I, don't, I don't want to go too far down the realm of the partisan politics and how we got here. I, I'm just back with the, the basic concept of of standard times for voting. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine, let's flip this around. Let's say you had a clerk of courts in a, a very, very, let's say, Republican area. All right, let, let's say, you know, Waukesha County, who decided, here's what we're going to do. We are going to open up the polls, you know, three days after the primary, and we're going to keep a clerk's office open 
um, 24-7 for however many weeks it is between there because we want to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to come in and vote. Now, if you did that, you would have people from other communities screaming, oh, this is terrible. They're, they're trying to, uh, again, make it easier for Republican counties to vote. It's why you need some degree of standardization. And it's why, I mean, I hope the Seventh Circuit would rule on this like about weeks ago so you wouldn't have to have this. But to the extent that they didn't, I'd say maybe the legislature is justified in taking another shot at it. It's 135, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Mike McCarthy is out as head coach of the Green Bay Packers. President Mark Murphy and interim coach Joe Philbin are both set to talk this afternoon. You can hear full coverage right here on your flagship of the Green Bay Packers, WTMJ. Yeah, the, the Murphy press conference is supposed to kick off in about 10 minutes or so. We are monitoring that, and we will bring it to you live. Again, um, my... My theory is, I, I mean, I understand, I said at the beginning of the show, I understand why Mike McCarthy had to go, and I understand actually why they, they did it now. I, I do wonder if Mark Murphy had fired Ted Thompson three or four years before he did, whether the Packers franchise would be in the state it's in. Just asking. All right, on this program, I, I comment a lot about the efforts that people go to to try to find racism in ordinary things. And it's, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the last several years in particular is that more and more people play the race card because they, they figure it it works. And it's not just race. Sometimes it's a gender card. Oh, if you oppose this, it means you're racist. If you oppose this, it, it means you're sexist. If you oppose this, it means you're homophobic or, or whatever. And, and and maybe it's just that you oppose something not because you hate people, but because it's a bad policy idea or something like that. And that's one of the things that, again, from the hate left, and, and I get that you have a hate right too. I mean, I, I understand both sides, but that's what it is with the hate left. You see that you you can't just disagree. You're just you're just a hater. All those types of things, and you kind of roll your eyes. And I admit it. I particularly cringe when I find people again trying to see racism. And don't get me wrong, there is real racism in this world, of course. But where you try to find racism in everything that is going on, and that's the prism you view your life through, it gets a little bit disappointing when you're constantly playing the race card. But we understand some people do that because it works. And then there is the flip side of that where you have people and you just kind of want to say, why did you think that this was going to be a good idea? And here's a story like this. When it comes to law enforcement, law enforcement has a really, really tough job nowadays. And and it's been made even tougher because it is, again, every action that a police officer takes nowadays especially if it's an action towards a person of color, it, it's viewed through that, that, pris, that prism of race. Are you doing this because the person is of a particular color? Would you have treated somebody of a different color differently than that? And, and that's always going to be the second guessing. It's always going to be the snap judgments. Well, here's a story out of Minneapolis. It's a precinct that is primarily, it's a majority-minority precinct. High crime precinct, High minority population, right, in Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis. Apparently, a couple police officers decide that they are, as a prank, going to put up a Christmas tree in in the station house. And, and again, you're talking about an urban area in Minnesota where the constituency 
primarily minority groups. So, okay, they, they, they're going to put up a Christmas tree. Now, you might say to me, Jeff, what's the big deal? What do you mean? It's a Christmas tree. How, how, can, how can that create a controversy? Well, apparently what they do on, on the Christmas tree, in addition to, like, the garland and things like that and the lights, what they do is they take a series of half-crushed cans of a particular brand of malt liquor, they crush them, and they put, like, again, the little hooks on them, and they hang these crushed cans of malt liquor on the Christmas tree. They take crumpled bags of a particular type of tortilla chip, which is popular. It's made by a Mexican brand company. They put crumpled bags of this and funyums up on the tree as ornaments. They take a cup from... Uh, Popeyes, and then they take two packs of Newport cigarettes, and then they put them up all over the tree. In other words, they decide to make ornaments about everything that might be stereotypical about a certain part of the community. Isn't this fun? Here, let's put up the menthol cigarettes. Here, let's put up the um, the junk food, the the the, the Mexican slash junk food. Let's put up cans of malt liquor. I mean, every stereotype that you might find, and let's do it as a prank. Um, well, nobody's laughing about this because, you know, once somebody finds out about this, it's like, okay, here's, and, and, you know, here's what you're doing. And there's no defense to this. You are mocking, you know, the people who are in the constituency that you are serving. Now, the two officers who did this, apparently they have been suspended for the moment. People are calling for their termination. I don't know what the appropriate disciplinary action is going to be, but I will tell you, this is one of those situations that for everybody who, you know, cringes when people play the race card all the time, then you have a story like this where this is clearly racist. There's no other way that you can interpret this. Who thought this particular thing was funny? And if you think that people in law enforcement have a tough job and have problems, everybody in law enforcement should be angry at these yo-hos out of Minneapolis who decided to do something like this because it plays into every stereotype that some people might want to have about the police department, which is being racist, etc., etc. I mean, who thought that this would be a good idea? So this is one of those examples where lots of people are offended. And you know what? I think they have every right to be so. It is 141. Let's take a quick break. Again, we are monitoring the Mark Murphy press conference. As soon as that starts, we will bring it to you. 141, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 143, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Former President George H.W. Bush passes away at 94. Scott Warris is in for John today, and he'll explore the life, the legacy, and the unique ties to the Badger State of former President Bush. That's today on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Be sure to tune in at 521. Again, um, any moment now, uh, Packers President and CEO Mark Murphy is supposed to address the public, talking about the decision he made yesterday to fire Mike McCarthy after that dud of a game. We'll uh, be bringing that to you in its entirety. We're monitoring to it, and we're monitoring the press conference as we speak. Hey, speaking of general managers, I sent out a tweet about this over the weekend uh, because I think credit where credit is due. One of the most difficult things for any of us to do is to admit that we were wrong. It's just, I mean, human nature is that you don't want to admit that you made a mistake. And as a result of that, see, one of my rules of life, and it's something when I talk to, when I talk to school groups or one of, one of my big things is, you know, 
if you want to be a success in life, you, you just you have to learn from your mistakes, and you you just commit to never making the same mistake twice. And I think if you basically kind of learn from the things that you did wrong, unfortunately, some people don't learn from the things they did wrong, and they keep repeating things over and over again. But you know, one of the biggest and one of the most difficult things is to admit that you got it wrong. And the truth of the matter is, we are all going to make mistakes. All right. It's how you deal with those mistakes moving forward. So let us turn our attention to Brewers manager, uh, David, general manager, David Stearns, who I think did an absolute. I think he has done an absolutely incredible job of taking the Milwaukee Brewers and building them you know, into a team that came within one game of going to the World Series and doing it in a record time. He has made great free agent signings. He has made great player acquisitions. He's made some really, really good draft choices. I think if you look up and down, you find that Stearns, well, he, he's done, I think, as well as Henry general manager in, in the league. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that, which isn't to say that you're not going to throw in a clunker every now and then. That's just the reality of that. And he, over the weekend, rectified a clunker. I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. But it looks like we have our feed here. Press conference is starting. This is uh, Mark All Murphy. right. I, uh, I'll just make uh, a couple brief comments and uh, then open up for questions uh, for myself or Brian. Uh, obviously, this has been uh, a difficult couple of days. And... Uh, yeah, it's kind of the worst part of our business, but uh, it's, it was a difficult decision to, to make the coaching change. I wanted to, to first just talk a little bit about Mike uh, McCarthy. Um, you know, I think uh, obviously he's a tremendous coach for us. Had a uh, great run here. You know, I think people are aware. Obviously, 13 years, kind of unheard of in uh, today's NFL, uh, making the playoffs. Nine, nine years, uh, nine times, uh, eight years in a row, uh, Packers record, and obviously the Super Bowl win uh, was the highlight. And he's also a great man, and uh, that makes it even more difficult uh, to make a decision like this. But you know, in evaluating the season, um, I, I really felt that change was needed, and um, kind of Mike's tenure had run its course. Um, I think we we needed a, a new voice, and um, you know it happens in our league. I, I look at the situation a couple of years ago with uh, Andy Reid in Philadelphia. Obviously, he had great success there, and um, you know you look uh, you know, with the the change there, and uh, in terms of uh, making a coaching change there, he's obviously gone on and uh, had great success in Kansas City, and obviously Philadelphia, the success uh, that they had with the, the coaching change that's worked well for both. And um, I, I guess the other thing I would would stress um, in, in terms of the timing, you know, I think uh, we all would have preferred to, to make the change uh, following the season. Um, you know, we've been in these situations with Mike before. Uh, obviously, you, you think back to 2016, we were four and six. Um, all of our efforts were in, you know, uh, turning the season around. I, I really think if we'd gotten a key win here or there, things would have changed. But uh, the way the season unfolded, it just we're never able to get that win. And quite honestly, the uh, performance on Sunday night, uh, to me, made it very clear uh, that uh, coaching change was needed. 
Uh, Brian was uh, has been involved uh, is is involved in that decision. He and I met after the uh, the game last night, and uh, both agreed that uh, a change was needed. And um, you know it. Uh, yeah, and uh, we have a great history and tradition here, and uh, very disappointed in what we've seen this year. I think uh, everybody associated with the organization is disappointed. Season we have, uh, but particularly the performance last night, uh, in my mind, was unacceptable. So, uh, knowing that we're going to make the change, um, in my mind, uh, it's best uh, for the organization to, to make the change now rather than waiting uh, to the offseason. The, uh, the process of hiring a coach is a competitive process. It gets us into the market earlier. Um, I think a side benefit, quite honestly, is for Mike. It, uh, I think he's going to be a, a strong candidate. I think uh, there will be a number of openings across the league, and this allows him to, to focus on <clears throat> the next, uh, next opportun opportunity for him. You know, the other key I would say is, uh, you know, we've got four games left. Um, you know, I, I just met with, uh, with the team. I talked to the players. Um, there's a lot uh, left to, to play for, both as a team and certainly for them individuals. Um, you know, I, I mentioned and uh, talked to them a little bit. I was in a similar position about halfway through my career. I know it's, uh, uh, it's a difficult time, uh, a lot of uncertainty for players, and the very best thing they can do is uh, play their best and uh, for the team to play well. Um, you know, the other thing I would mention as we move forward, uh, and obviously this is uh, just uh, a couple days uh, in our second day, uh, we'll be going forward with the, forward with the searches, search process. Uh, Brian will be actively involved, and uh, our goal is to get the very best coach uh, to get the Packers back to playing championship football. Last, last thing I want to mention uh, is just uh, talk a little bit about uh, the decision to make uh, Joe Philbin interim head coach. Um, first, I have great respect for Joe. Um, he's as fine a man as I think uh, you'll meet, and but he's also been a, a part of some of our uh, some of our very best teams here. Um, you know the Super Bowl team and the teams around that era, and you know another advantage, uh, quite honestly, of making the change now rather than after the season is it, it gives us an opportunity uh, to see Joe as our head coach uh, for uh, for four games, see how the team responds, and uh, you know see uh, see how uh, coach. Coaches and others respond, and uh, you know, hopefully we can finish the season on a strong note. Um, you know, I've seen it across the league that uh, although each year stands on its own, um, you, know, you can uh, build up confidence and uh, have, if you have success one year, can carry over the other. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Um, you know, just you know, it's. Uh, uh, we are, we, I, I have great confidence in this organization. Uh, we're disappointed where we are now, but our focus now is on uh, finishing, se finishing the season strong and then uh, hiring the very best coach that we can uh, for, uh, for the team. So with that, I'll open it up to any questions that uh, any of you may have. Brian, you're a football guy. What, what did you see on Sunday? You know, I think uh, obviously, you know, we've had um, certain expectations and standards around here for, for a long time. Uh, we certainly had them coming into the season. Um, they haven't been met. Um, I think, uh, you know, 
to come out at, at home uh, in this particular situation uh, yeah, against a team that we felt we should, you know, we should beat. Um, it just wasn't uh, it wasn't up to our standard, and uh, it wasn't acceptable for what we what, what we want around here. Brian, did you believe that the cracks in the foundation were beyond repair? I wouldn't term it like that. Cracks in the foundation. I think the foundation, this organization, is very, very strong. Uh, I think there's um, a lot of positive things moving forward. Again, you know, each season, you know, uh, stands on its own. We had expectations this year; um, they weren't met. I don't think we've played well most of the season, um, and I think uh, yesterday was just one of those moments where it was, uh, you know, we were looking forward where we're going, and uh, it wasn't uh, the things weren't changing that needed to be changed. Mark, are you making the hire? Uh, I will, but Brian will be actively involved, and you know, obviously, made a decision last night. But uh, we'll put together a committee and we'll uh, move forward. This would seem like a really good time to hand things over to him. Uh, why not do that? Uh, you know, much has been made. Uh, I've seen some articles about the structure. Um, you know, to me, the biggest, the most important thing is the the people uh, in the building and the relationships. And um, you know, so we, I, Brian and I will work together, and uh, we'll together we'll hire the best coach. I, I'm not going to hire, I'm not going to hire a coach that Brian is not comfortable with. Yeah. I think I said this when I got hired, and when the structure was kind of laid out. You know, this is this is about people, and I wouldn't have been uh, I wouldn't have felt comfortable if it wasn't for the people involved going forward uh, with that structure. Um, and that's what it's about. It's really about the people, and I feel very confident that uh, we're going to get the right guy in this. I can see a scenario where, let's say, there's two guys. You're okay with both of them, but you actually like one better than the other, and Mike likes or uh, Mark likes the other one. Um, who do you hire in that situation? We're not. We're not going to talk about hypotheticals, Pete. I, I feel really confident we'll come to a, con to a conclusion uh, what's best for the organization, and we'll move forward that way. Um, we got a lot of strong uh, people in the building that will be going through that process. Yeah, Chris. Mark, you guys are talking about uh, people and relationships. It's pretty evident that the relationship between your star player and the previous head coach had fractured. What was done behind the scenes to try and repair that, and how much of that do you think is responsible for where you guys sit today? Well, um, well, first of all, I'd say, you know, I'm assuming you were talking about Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Aaron and uh, Aaron and Mike, I mean, they, they had a great run together. I mean, you, they won an awful lot of games together, including the Super Bowl and the, the playoffs that we talked about. Um, and, you know, this decision, it's not about, you know, one player. I mean, this is what's best for uh, the Packer team, Packer organization. I don't know, Brian, if you, you want to uh, interject. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that uh, there's been a lot written and it's probably been overblown about that relationship. I mean, the football team is made up of a lot of individuals and there's, you know, tension uh, between coaches and players all the time. I think that... Uh, you know, like Mark said, they've, they've had a lot of success here. Um, they're both very high-level quality individuals, and uh, um, I think there's a lot more to it uh, for where we sit right now than that. Mark, I get that hindsight is hindsight, but it was about a year ago that you gave Mike the one-year extension. In, in hindsight, would it have been better to have made a move at head coach then when you also did the same GM with Ryan? Uh, no, I mean, you know, you look at it, I mean, last year was disappointing. Um, we had, obviously, the injury to Aaron. I think going into this year, realistically, we all had high expectations that we'd be back uh, competing for a championship and Super Bowls. So it was disappointing. Uh, but, uh, no, I, th I think, uh, you know, like, I, I mean, Mike's had a great run here. And, and I don't think, 
I think it, uh, it just, to me, it felt that it's run, it had run its course. It wasn't anything that he particularly did wrong. I just, uh, I think the change is needed now. Mark, how far back the evaluative discussions really began on, on how this season was going away? And when did you start kind of discussing the potential for this season? Well, you know, I mean, Brian and I talked throughout the whole year. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's been disappointing, but like I said before, we've been in these situations before, and our whole focus was on giving Mike the support that he, support that he needed, uh, needs. And um, we were optimistic and hopeful that you know, we would be able to make a run and, and make it into the playoffs. And, um, but I, I think the performance Sunday night, at least for me, kind of solidified that uh, we needed to make a change. Mike, the support he needs. Was the roster good enough for Coach to win at a much higher level this year? Yeah, you know, I'll say that, um, you know, the thing that I think, I think that our team, you know, I think I believe in the guys in the locker room. You know, I really do. Um, you know, there's each year is different, um, but there's talent in that locker room, and the team didn't perform to the expectations that we set for it. And I think that's kind of why we're here where we're at. Mark, Mark, what you Mark with regards to Brian, mm -hmm. um, what does actively involved mean? Uh, he's going to be involved in the entire search. We're going to identify the candidates. He'll interview all the candidates, and uh, you know, it's we're going to find we're going to find the right head coach for the Packers, and he and I will both agree on it. You guys were just talking about Aaron a minute ago. Um, does he have? Do you want to do you want, do you want to include him in any of this stuff as far as whether he's sitting in on the interviews, part of the process? Does he weigh in on this at all? No. No, he, he won't. Uh, you know, obviously uh, he's free to provide input and talk to us, but he's not going to be part of the process. Yeah, Mark, and, Mark and Brian, I'm curious here from both of you. Could you outline what you're looking for in terms of qualities for the next head coach yeah. specifically? Brian, I don't know if you wanted to respond to. Yeah, I'll just go back to his question real quick. I just want to say that, you know, you know I have felt since I've been here, you know, I have a very good relationship with all, a lot of our veteran players and stuff, and certainly um, we're in constant communication about how our locker room is and kind of and, and where that is at. So from that point, obviously, we're not going to you know, consult any of our players on the search and have them a part of it, but at the same time, I think we, we have a very good feel for our locker room. So um, that I'll you know, answer it that way. Yeah. And well, the other thing I'd say, Aaron was no part at all of the decision to move on from Mike. Correct. Specifically, are you targeting an offensive mind to be the next head coach, and how how important is it to look at external or or is Joe Philbin a, a, a real candidate for this year? Well, you know, Joe is a legitimate candidate uh, in my mind. I mean, he's been a head coach in the league. He's had great part of the most successful teams that we've had here. You know, I, I'm not going to say we're looking for this or that attribute or trade. I, I think, you know, we want to find the very best coach and a coach that will bring the Packers back to, to winning Super Bowls. Mark, obviously you understand, Brian, you understand the importance of, of Aaron to your team. How, how important is the fit between he and the next coach? I think it's incredibly important that it's the right fit for the organization and the team. Uh, and Aaron's obviously a very, very big part of that. So as we move forward, I think it's, you know, the, the very first thing about it is the person, uh, kind of how they're wired and, and, and the culture we have here. Um, and Aaron's a very big part of that. When Mike came in, mm -hmm. It's 2 o'clock. This is Jeff Wagner. You're listening to WTMJ Milwaukee, continuing coverage of the press conference. Mark Murphy and the Packers general manager talking about the decision to relieve Mike McCarthy of head coaching duties. Well, you know, I, I would say, uh, you know, I've been around the league a long time. Brian has. Things can change quickly. And uh, I would say this about Brian. Um, 
you know, we've had one of Brian's drafts, and um, and all one off season of the changes that he's made to the roster. I'm very optimistic. You know, I think with the way we positioned ourselves for the draft this next year, that we can make a big change quickly. You know, I look at New Orleans three, seven, and nine years in a row, and then uh, hit a, hit on a big draft, and uh, you can make a change. And uh, so, um, you know, uh, the expectations are high here. We want to we want to win, um, but you know. Uh, I guess you know. I don't know if you want to add, any, add anything to that, Brian. I think this was. I think this decision was about changing our course more than anything, and uh, we just felt like it was time to change the course. Do either one of you is Mike Benton a potential candidate, and if not, would you like to impress upon the new coach to keep him? You know, those are questions that uh, we'll, we'll answer down the road, but. Uh, yeah, I don't want to get into any of those details. Yeah. Would you explore college coaches or must next coach have some sort of NFL experience? You know, again, we mentioned I'm not going to get into we're going to look at this or that uh, other than, you know, just that uh, the process is just getting started and we're going to hire, you know, the, the very best candidate, the best person, uh, and the best fit for this organization. I don't think we're, I don't think we're going to put any kind of parameters on, on anything as we go forward. I think we're going to. You know, I don't think we're going to close the door on anything. Mark, in January, when you interviewed Brian and, and the structure, I asked you if at some point you might give Brian the, you know, the authority of the coach, and you said, yeah, that's possibly down the stretch. Why is this not the right time to do that? Uh, well, like I said, the structure is not the most important thing. Brian and Brian and I are together on this, and uh, you know we're going to hire a really strong candidate to get us back to where we want to be. Mark, Mark, isn't the structure going to be important to your candidate? Aren't there going to be candidates who want to be tied in with the GM? So he's the guy who's going to be making a lot of the decisions. Uh, Tom, you would think that, but there are also a lot of candidates who would rather report to a president or an owner. Uh, than the general manager. And the structure, again, you're focused on the structure. The most important thing is the people and the relationships. And, you know, Brian have a great, and I have a great relationship, and, um, you know, I, I think we're going to we'll be in good shape, and I'm confident we'll be able to hire an excellent coach. And I, think, I, think, I think the one thing to answer part of your question, too, is this, this is going to be an attractive job. I mean, this is the Green Bay Packers. This is one of the cornerstones of the National Football League with a quarterback, a Hall of Fame quarterback. So I think going forward, I don't think that, uh, that you know, there's anything here that would, would should hesitate any coach from considering this job. Yeah, we have history and tradition, um, you know, the resources that we have available for coaches. Um, it's an attractive job. Mark, is there a personal desire on your part to be the guy that picks the coach? <laughs> no, I, I want to do what's best for the organization. All right, do it. Until you're a little agitated and we're focused on the structure. Do you understand why we're why are you more I don't want to brag about myself, but <laughs> um, I've been, all of my adult life, I've been in, involved in football. I've seen it from the perspective of a player. I've been an athletic director for 17 years. I've hired many, many coaches, um, several football coaches. 
And so I think I have a lot to offer. Uh, I feel that I'm a football person, even though I'm on the, in a position of president. And Brian and I have a great relationship. And I think this gives the Packers the best chance to have success. And, and that's why I'm doing it. Your experience with Joe Gibbs helped you from your time with him? Do you think that the lessons you learned from him or being around him? Does that have some value in this process? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and you know, I worked uh, in the NFL Players Association. I've been around the, the football a long time. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I try not to have an ego. Uh, and I think for, for this situation, Brian and I working together, I, I think uh, we can find an excellent coach. This is crucial for the organization. Do you guys have a uh, short list to work from already, or are you going to hire a consultant? Yeah, we're, we're just getting started in that process. I mean, it, you know, we're day two, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be working on those over the next few weeks. So you have, like, the, advan the advantage of doing it now, um, you know, it really start, start kind of identifying candidates. You can start to talk to certain people, uh, you know, coaches that are uh, still coaching. You have to wait until after the season and there are playoff, and playoff rules around the playoffs, but uh, it gives us a little bit of a head start. I've heard of some GMs of voice kind of had that ready list just in case. Do you have one of those? Again, you <coughs> you might change for the next couple weeks. Sure. Yeah, and I Brian, think, yeah, Brian. I, I think, you know, we're in, in the personnel business, that's always something, you know, obviously we're evaluators of players first, but I think that's something that back to Ron Wolf that always taught us. You're always looking, uh, evaluating coaches as well. So, you know, we've all, I think you always keep those lists, and we certainly have uh, an idea of where we're going to start, um, but this will be an ongoing process. How did, uh, how did Mike react? You know, I don't want to get into the details, but he, he was very professional. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, He's he's a first class person, and um, I wasn't surprised at all. I know it's I wasn't surprised that he handled it as well as he did, and uh, made a comment that uh, you know it's a coaching profession, and I know what I, I know what I got into when I became a coach. Was it a short conversation? Would you say? Yeah, it was. It was fairly short. Was Mark Ryan involved in that conversation? Made, was the decision made to move on before yesterday's game, and then the result uh, dictated the timing? No, I think, you know, up until yesterday, we were hopeful that, um, you know, we get a big win, uh, kind of turn the season around. Uh, but, yeah, no, I think the, the performance yesterday really sealed it for me. And then, you know, okay. Brian and I talked score, wrong. Did the end score dictate that? Had the field goal been made and, and had you won the game? <coughs> That's a hypothetical, you know. but we did not play well. You know, I mean, uh, to lose to a two and nine team at home, you know, a team from Arizona in a dome, uh, you know, that that was not a good performance. And uh, you know, I think in my mind that made clear that we needed to make a change. Um, going back to Aaron, um, some other teams, uh, the Bucks with Coach Kuzmir, they had him sit down with the. <coughs> Well, and my door is open, Brian's is open, we have good relationships with, with Aaron, have tremendous respect for him. Um, 
But, you know, he's not going to be making the decision on who our next coach is, but we would welcome welcome any input. Okay. I, I, I guess that's what I'm asking. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think anyone's suggesting you should. Yeah, I don't know if that's completely fair to Aaron. You know, he's, a, he's the quarterback of our football team, and that's obviously a, a big job in itself. Uh, like I said before, I have you know, a very good relationship with guys in our locker room, including Aaron. Uh, their input is is always taken into a to you know account, um, but at the same time, you know, he Aaron does an uh, outstanding job of leading our football team as our quarterback, and I think that's uh, that won't change. Um, and uh, as we move forward, whatever we need from Aaron, I know he's all in. Uh, he's very committed and driven uh, to get this thing to where it needs to be. Brian, does this change how you run? His his season this year has not been to his standards, not close. I don't think anybody can argue that. Do you? In evaluating what you've seen, can you put your finger on why he doesn't appear to be the same player that he was? Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that comment there, that he's not the same player that he was. I'll say this. Our team hasn't responded and played to the level that uh, we expected to and we, that we thought we would this year. Um, and I think there's a room for improvement throughout our team. And I think there's going to be a time when we get this thing clicking, hopefully sometime this season, um, where we're, we're operating uh, you know, better than we have. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, your characterization of Aaron, I, wouldn't, I, I don't see that. Two more, please. Brian, would you, does this change how um, you want your, the evaluation for your, your picks, the younger guys on this roster, for instance, mm-hmm. would you want Bob Tanyan playing or Alex Wright light activated? Would you right. like to see that or is it still trying to... Yeah, that's a good question. I think the most important thing for me is that we do everything we can to win these next four games, starting this week in Atlanta, and then starting and focusing on that alone. We have not played well, uh, you know, most of the season, and I would like us to play well in this game and win it. Um, my focus is there. That you only get so many opportunities to lace them up for these players, and I think it's important to them to go out there and uh, and compete um, and try to win some games. I think that's 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 really important. Brian, what's the last year? Yeah, this is the NFL, and I've I've been around football, you know, pretty much all my life, and 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 change and unexpected things are certainly part of that. Um, you really never know what you're going to get into as you go along. Uh, you can't really predict things. Um, and there has been more change than I think you want. You know, you'd like to have some more continuity. And we expect that you know, going forward in the future. At the same time, um, you know, kind of like Mark was talking about with Coach Mike, you know what you sign up for. And, and we're in positions of, of leadership to make decisions. And you have to make the best decisions you can to move forward and do what's best for the team. And uh, like I said, I think that's always the focus. And, and that's what we try to do on a daily basis. Mark, is it possible you have a time coach before the NFL season ends? Or would you definitely want to wait and be able to interview some NFL guys? No, I, I think we'll definitely wait until after the season. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's 2-12. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. You were listening to full coverage of the press conference. That was the Packers president, CEO Mark Murphy, and the general manager of the Packers discussing the decision to relieve Mike McCarthy of his coaching duties. We'll be back with more in just a minute. 2-12. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 221. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we're back. We had one of these minor glitches where... 
I was in the middle of a sentence, and all of a sudden, the microphone just kind of went dead. But we have now figured out our ACE engineering team has solved the problem. Outstanding. The point I was trying to make before we were so rudely interrupted was I give David Stearns a lot of credit. He, he made this trade for Jonathan Scope, brought him in, and, and then Scope just – he might be a great guy. Don't, don't know. Maybe he's got a lot of great baseball left. But he just he, – he stunk when he was playing for the Milwaukee Brewers. And so they had to make a decision on Friday, do you offer him salary arbitration or not? And the estimates were if you did, he was probably going to get $10 million a year which is an interesting comment on where you are in professional sports, that you can play as, as badly as Jonathan Scope did and, and still be guaranteed $10 million a year. But the Brewers had to decide, do we want to take the chance? Do we want to take the chance that maybe that last half a season was an aberration and he's going to be able to turn it around? Or do we want to say, hey, we can do better with $10 million? And they decided to, uh, again, move on. And I give the general manager a lot of credit. He said, he he was honest, he owned it. He said, look, I view it as a bad deal and that's on me. In other words, I I made a bad trade, okay? that This is on me. It didn't work out. I'm sure he wasn't the only one that thought it was a good potential trade, but the whole idea is we're not going to throw good money after bad. And again, I give him just a ton of credit for this because the situation was he, he knew he was going to do something. Okay, I don't know that we're going to carry the entire press conference, but we've got Joe Philbin, who's going to be the interim head coach of the Green Bay Packers. He's now addressing the media here. We'll dip into that. And, you know, so uh, I was in the locker room and just, you know, check with all the players after the game, like I always do. Um, and then, you know, uh, Brian grabbed me and said that they, you know, Mark wanted to see me. And so went up to my office and, um, you know, then visited with uh, Mark and, you know, then talked, uh, you know, talked to Mike. And, um, you know, and it's been tough. I, mean, I haven't slept very much. Um, you know, you come back here and you, you know, you want to be part of the solution. You want to help a guy that has uh, <clears throat> been great. Uh, man, he's been a great coach, he's been a uh, friend, and uh, you know you feel like you let him down. Um, so it's uh, yeah, it's been busy. Uh, it's been um, you know, and, and um, you know, I told the team, you know, uh, he's, I mean, what he's done here speaks up for itself, and uh, you know, I know how he feels, you know, and uh, I've been through it. It's not, it's not fun. Given your relationship with Mike, did you have any reservations about replacing his head coach? No, not really. I mean, I've I've talked to Mike twice, and uh, you know, I'm I'm an empl- I'm a member of the Green Bay Packers coaching staff, and um, you know, I care about this organization. I love this organization, and um, this is the role I'm in right now, and uh, I'm going to do the role to the best of my ability. So, what do you think you can do to kind of help get this thing turned around right now? Yeah, I mean, I told the players, look, you know. Uh, I put the number 13 on the screen, big, big screen, and I said, look, all we, you know, we got uh, one thing to think about, and that's our 13th game against the Atlanta Falcons, a good football team coming to Lambeau Field at 12 o'clock. And, you know, we, we got to do things better, all of us, you know. And uh, you know, I told them, you know, number one uh, responsibility you have is to be a professional, period. Uh, we all have a job to do. We all have to do it better. Um, Players and coaches, I said it wasn't just, it wasn't all on them, uh, wasn't all on us. And, um, you know, we're not going to make, you know, sweeping structural changes and those type of things. There's, you know, it's not like we're going to fly some magic players and magic coaches in here in the next four weeks. We've got a good group of men. 
We've got a good staff. Uh, we have to get these guys to, to play better. We've got to make some plays. You know, we, we have to help each other out and play more complimentary football. You know, it just doesn't seem like we just haven't had that a uh, lot of momentum that's sustained itself over a period of time. And, you know, it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg. You know, you don't, you're not making plays. So you guys, you guys are, you know, there's not a ton of energy. There's not a ton of juice, you know, sometimes. And, but what starts that, you know, it's, uh, it's a little bit of the approach, a little bit of the mindset. So, um, you know, we have to play sounder, better football. we got to step up and make some plays, you know. Gonna, I'm sorry, who's going to call plays? Uh, I am. Did you call plays in Miami? Uh, no. No. So are you, are you attacking this like it's an audition to potentially be the next head coach? Are you thinking of it that way? Uh, no. I'm thinking of it. I'm, you know, I want to get our practice schedule for this week ready to roll and uh, get this team to play up to its potential uh, this Sunday against Atlanta. I'm doing the same thing I asked the team to do. I'm really just focused on game 13, Atlanta Falcons, 12 o'clock. You know, how can we play uh, our best football game of the year on all, in all three phases? With that said, Joe, Mark Murphy did just say that he views you as a candidate and that he wanted to see this team play under you for four games. Do you want to be the next head coach? Uh, you know, again, look, uh, this is a job I have right now. You know, I think Jason maybe asked me last week, if I'm not mistaken, about you know my personal ambitions. And you know, my ambition in 2018 right now is to help this team play its best football of the year, period. And uh, the future is the future. We'll deal with that when it comes. So have you ever been a part of an interim situation? And, and how do you handle Yeah, I'm trying to, trying to think. Uh, over 35 years, I'm trying to go through. Um, not, not that it's jumping out at me. You know, I just was honest with the players. You know, we had a 15-minute team meeting, maybe 20 minutes. I told them, "Look, let's get through today. Let's make the corrections that need to be made from the game." You know, coaches. You know, um, I asked Tremont Williams. You know, are you going to always? Is that, are you ever going to give up a completion on a guy you're covering? Uh, yeah, you probably are. You know, are we going to? Is David Bakhtiari going to always make every single block? No. You know. Uh, do coaches make every perfect call? Absolutely not. So you know, it's about making progress. We got to make some progress as a football team, and we got to, you know, we got to, we have to play better, and we have to coach better too, without a doubt. So we'll do some things that look a little different um, in the offense. No, we'll see. You know, we haven't, you know, I haven't. Started a lot, you know. We're going to get together and watch the Atlanta blitzes here at four o'clock, and we're going to get our protection set uh, against their defensive schemes as an offensive unit. You know, I, you know, the real thing I said to the staff. You know, we met as a staff again briefly. Things have been moving fast, as you could imagine. And I said, uh, I asked Mike, I asked Ron, I told our offensive guys, you know, let's see if we can identify three or four things that we can really sink our teeth into, and we don't care what the Falcons do, we can execute these calls. You know, and um, you know that's really we got we got to kind of establish an identity that way, and um, not interested in a ton of new schemes. I'm not interested in you know uh, if we can streamline it a little bit. Uh, I think that'd be fine too. Um, but it's more about you know playing the game the right way. You know, uh, getting some momentum as a football team, playing some complimentary football, and um, you know scoring more points and keeping keep people out of the end zone. What you learn from uh, being a head coach with the Dolphins? What's your takeaway from that experience? Uh, I think you have to trust your, in, you know, you have to be honest. You have to trust your instincts. You know, uh, sometimes when you're a head coach, you don't have, you know, when you're an assistant, you're a coordinator, you have time to be the expert in a lot of different areas, right? And you can watch all that tape, and you you don't you're not really uh, pulled in different directions. When you're a head coach, you you don't really have that luxury. And so it took, you know, I think one of the mistakes and. 
we don't have time to cover all the mistakes I made. Um, you know, was you know at times you, you know you trust your instincts, you know, uh, and you have to do that. And you have to make some more gut decisions. Um, there's some that came perfectly true that I can look back on and and know. Um, and you know that's part of the learning process. Aaron Rodgers says he plans to play these next four weeks, but is there any concern for you and him and his knee going forward here for the rest of the season? No, I mean, I think he's moving better than he has. Um, you know, he had a couple, uh, I thought he moved well in the pocket yesterday. You know, he had a couple runs for first downs, I think, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, and again, unless the medical people tell me otherwise, um, I have not, I don't have any concern at this point. What kind of involvement do you expect to have with the defense over these next four games? You know, uh, I talked to Mike. Again, I'm less concerned about, you know, uh, us. Are we, are we playing enough press man-to-man? Are we doing enough simulated pressure? Are we overload pressure? You know, that's that's his area of expertise. I got, I'm going to have a full plate as it is. Again, what I want to see is some things we can identify with as a defensive unit. Uh, I told it, I put up, you know, what, what does a defensive player do? They take on blocks. Uh, they cover people, right? They pursue. They tap and they take away the ball. You know, that's what I'm, I want to see on film when we play defense. Um, how that all comes together, you know, that's really his area of expertise. And, who's going um, to uh, do the responsibilities that you were doing? Uh, yeah, still to be determined. You know, we're still kind of working through some of that. So we, uh, we all know how important family is to you. What what Diane say about, about this, uh, what you're going to do? Yeah, you know, you know, it's tough. I mean, um, you know, she felt, you know, she she knows this feeling. Um, you know, it, it's you know, it's hard. Uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard for everybody. You know, I saw her after the game, and then I stayed, and you know, it, um, I didn't know everything at that point in time when I saw her. But um, you know, it's you know, she feels for uh, for Mike and Jessica and the family and the kids. You know, I remember, you know, when uh, you know when Mike Sherman got fired, our kids at our dinner at our supper table. I still remember it vividly, you know. So, you know, but it is our thirtieth anniversary today, so, you know, uh, she's expecting a big dinner and everything, you know, all that. So. But, yeah, don't hold her breath. <laughs> What's that? Um, did, did Mike give you his blessing? Did he tell you anything? Yeah, we've talked twice. We've had a great, you know, we've had two great conversations. Uh, again, two very emotional conversations. And I told him, uh, we spoke this morning. I told him, we, you know, we missed him already. You know, we were reviewing the staff, we, uh, the film. We talked about the game a little bit. Um, you know, it, you know, I, I didn't. It, it wasn't necessarily a blessing from on high, but you know. I, Told him I loved him. He told me the same thing. So I, you know, I think we're in a good spot. Joe, you think back on the decision to take this, knowing that Mike had only been extended for a year. You know the nature of the business. Did you have reservations then about overall long term? No, not at all. Not at all. No, I mean I have a lot of faith. I had a lot of faith in uh, Mike McCarthy as a coach, as a person, um, and you know, so I, I really had zero reservations whatsoever. Joe, was Mike and Aaron's relationship different when you came back this time? Not really. Not, 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 no, I don't think so. I mean, I'm, you know, we've gotten together. Usually uh, we spend a lot of time together, the three of us, on Fridays. And, uh, you know, very similar to what we used to do uh, back in the old days. And, um, you know, I, I don't see a significant. I know there's a lot made of that, but I, not, from where, not from my seat.
Mike McCarthy, I think. Yeah, I mean, he's record. I think he's done an outstanding job here. You know, I think he'd be a great coach somewhere. No, I gotta be more. Yeah, I gotta be the same guy. That's probably that's maybe mistake number two since you're bringing all these up, Jason. Um, no, you know, I think yeah, I gotta be the same. You know, uh, the same person, and not that I wasn't in uh, Miami, but uh, you know, again, this is. I love coaching. I love football. Um, you, know, you know, this is a good group of men. Looking forward to working with each and every one. I told the defensive guys, I, "Hey, let's be honest. You know, I don't know. I don't have the same kind of working relationship with you guys that you know I have with the other guys." And so I, I told them a little bit about me. You know, where I believe in. You know, the three or four things I told them. You know, I want to see us be, be professional, be accountable, be respectful, and be punctual. And if you do those four things, and we'll never have a problem. Yeah, I think the effort's been good. Yeah, I think the effort's been good. I think the preparation's been good. But we have to ramp it up a little bit. Obviously, it hasn't been good enough to deliver the results that we're looking for. You know, so the detail. You know, I don't really believe. And I, we watched again. We're going to do the same thing next week. You know, we watched uh, five plays. I think offensively as a unit, uh, things that we need to correct, things that we really didn't do very well, things that we were close. Uh, you know, in terms of execution, that would have made a big difference in the outcome of the game. And then we watched. Five plays where we we really did some, you know, outstanding things. And uh, as I told the team, you know, that happens in football. I don't care how well you play. There's always going to be room for corrections, and there's always going to be good things. And obviously, we got to, you know, tilt the get the balance where we're making more of those real positive, impactful plays, and less of the ones that need to be corrected. You know, that's always it's always one of the challenges in coaching. When you came back in January, you said that your goal is to quote make Mike McCarthy look like the smartest play caller in the National Football League. Um, just how frustrating has it been for you that? Yeah, it's been like I said. But yeah, I mean, you know, I have to. T- Again, when you're the offensive coordinator, you have to be accountable to the uh, head coach and the organization and to the players in terms of the production of the offense. And then it, ha- you know, it hasn't it hasn't been good enough. You know, uh, it needs to be better. It needs to be better in crunch time. You know, it's um, I don't think it's you know this far away. I don't think we're you know an awful offensive football team, but we we certainly have to be have to be better starting this Sunday. So what do you do in these next four games to to get Aaron playing like Aaron? Well, I think it's it's again it's a combination. It's not just Aaron Rodgers. I think that's one thing that I think gets lost. Uh, football is still a team game, and as many things as he's accomplished as a player, and some of the you know incredible things that he's done as an individual in this game, you still need you can't do it on your own. You know, and there's certain things he has to do better too individually, um, but. You know, we've got to clean up the detail and the precision in the passing game and the spacing and the timing and the releases and the catching the football. And we need some – there were issues a couple times in protection. I thought overall our protection was good yesterday, but there certainly were some issues that we need to correct. So, you know, it's 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 bigger than him, really. You know, um, certainly we want him to play better. I'm sure he wants to play better. Um, and I think if we can – if everybody can step up, you know, their level of preparation and their level of detail and their level – of performance, then his will come up too. It's 2.36, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. That is interim Packers head coach Joe Philbin, who was 
here before and, of course, came back this year to be the offensive coordinator. He was making references to his time. He, he left Green Bay originally about five years ago, I guess, and he was the head coach at Miami. I, I'm a big fan of his. I, I just am. I remember the first year he was the head coach of Miami. He was featured on the HBO show Hard Knocks, and it was sort of interesting. It kind of it was sort of unfair because it's his first year as a head coach, and you go into this. But he, he had a number of challenges. Challenges. He was clearly a no-nonsense guy and he was there for three years at Miami but I've always been a Joe Philbin fan I was glad when he came back I who, know, who knows what his future is going to be but right now he'll be the head coach for four uh four games for the Packers we'll continue to roll on the press conference um if there's anything else we'll of course bring it to you during our regular scheduled sports reports 237 Jeff Wagner WTMJ 241 Jeff Wagner WTMJ so very glad to have you with us something happened over the last couple days that I have to admit, I didn't think that I was ever going to see again in my lifetime. And that, I understand the full implications of, of that statement. Gru, who is producing the show today and always, do you know what that was? You do not. You have no clue at all. All right. Well, gasoline at some stations in southeastern Wisconsin fell below $2 a gallon. I, I, now... I will not date myself by telling you how much gasoline was when I first started driving, all right? But ever since what happened, ever since you had the Arab oil embargo in the mid-'70s, gasoline prices went through the roof. You'd have long gas lines and things like that, and the the cost of gasoline just spiked up dramatically. Now, it used to be, I can remember a time where, again, you would pull in, it was full service, You'd have a guy that would come out, would wipe your windshields, would give you green stamps, would fill your tires up with air, and 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 still, you know, you could get a full tank for well, not that much money. Well, those days have really been gone since the mid seventies, and it wasn't that long ago that we had gasoline. I mean, remember when it was four bucks a gallon? Certainly over three dollars a gallon, and pushing four bucks a gallon. And you had a number of things that everybody was talking about. Number one because people didn't want to pay $4 a gallon or couldn't afford to pay $4 a gallon. I can remember us doing shows where people would actually, we would talk about how the price of gasoline was, number one, influencing the type of automobiles we chose to drive, and number two, influencing driving. When it was like 4 bucks a gallon, people would sit there and think, well, all right, do I really need to make this trip? Or maybe I can combine trips or things like that. Well, well, that has changed for a variety of reasons. Number one, we are no longer anywhere near as dependent on foreign oil as, as we were at one point in time. Matter of fact, now, depending on what who you listen to or who you talk to you mean the US might be the number one producer of oil in the in the world in large part because we have measures like our our ability to find oil and extract oil through processes like frank fracking and things like that you know now we're suddenly awash in oil and what you're starting to do is you're starting to see the prices come down all as effect of supply and demand now there's still always issues that are out there most notably the limitations we have on refineries it's not necessarily a lack of oil but it's can you refine the oil and then of course you know how do you get the oil pipelines and things like that how are you going to get the oil to where it ultimately is going to be consumed those continue to be issues but the bottom line is in wisconsin gasoline now below in a couple of spots two dollars a gallon and i think for most of us um i filled up yesterday 
it was $2.19, and I think I probably paid I'm, I As I was driving around over the weekend, I saw other places that were less than two nineteen, but for whatever reasons, I didn't stop. Yesterday, I finally needed gas, stopped in the rain, and got it for $2.19 a gallon. But the estimates are that this this is going to stay here for quite a while. Oil prices have plunged. Supplies have built up for a variety of reasons. It appears that, um, again, you know, prices might be stable. Now, I don't know that it's always going to be, you know, below two to bucks. And I don't know that it's going to be $2.19 a gallon. But nobody is suggesting that there's going to be a huge, huge spike. 414-799-1620. That's the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When price, when oil prices and gasoline prices are high, it it hits us like a hammer because the whole idea is, well, all right, you, you've got to pay money. You've got to drive your car. You've got to drive back and forth to work. I understand some people take public transportation, but but in general, you need to use your cars. You need, And so you really don't have any choice but to pay the high gas prices. And so when we're paying very high gas prices, what happens is it, it influences our life. I want to talk to you about the flip side, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When gas prices are low, like they are now, does that influence your buying decisions? Does that change your life? I mean, like I say, I yesterday, I filled up. I mean, and my car was pretty much empty. That little oil light was on, you know, the, the gasoline light was on, telling me, you know, Jeff, unless you want to run out of gas, it, it's time to pull in. And I was, I was just stunned, full tank of gas, with how inexpensive it was compared to you know what i i can remember it being i mean the difference 10 gallons for you know 22 bucks versus 10 gallons for 40 dollars i think from a perspective of consumer confidence and a perspective of spending oil prices are one of those things that has a huge psychological effect on us because if you know you're saving 10 dollars a gallon every time you fill your tank i think that encourages people to spend stuff on other things and it gives you more disposable income 414-799-1620 that's the accurate mortgage talk and text line all right is this an early christmas present can it last and how big a deal is it for you let's start with george in milwaukee george you're on wtmj good afternoon hi jeff how you doing real well thank you sir i can remember gasoline at 19.9 back when i was in the 60s and then came the embargo and gas prices shot up I wouldn't trust this very much at all. I would not go out and buy a car now that, that guzzles gasoline just because the price dropped below two dollars. Right? Do you? Well, I, I I guess I wouldn't buy a car based on that otherwise. But of course, people have been you know moving away from the small cars and buying the SUVs and stuff because gas prices have been low for so long. Right, and then it could turn around at any moment. Anything could happen in the world, and that price is going to jump right up so enjoy while you can but i don't think it would influence me to go purchase anything right now but okay. i i'm enjoying it well right well exactly no thanks so well i mean look i i just i mean we we as as consumers i i do think you know we react to stuff that that's going on at the moment and i i just i mean i i vividly remember like i say when you were looking at gas prices that were pushing four dollars a gallon it was a situation where people were saying okay i don't I, I don't have, if it's going to cost me 40 bucks 
to to fill up my gas tank as opposed to 22 that's $18 less that I have to spend on this, that, or the other thing. I also think it had a huge psychological effect on people because gasoline prices is something that we see every day that is out there and candidly i guess i just think this is good now is it gonna is it gonna stay this cheap for that long no somebody sent me a note the gas stations that were below two bucks on thursday and friday are now up to two dollars and nine cents but um you know bottom line is it's still a situation where you, you got a good deal or at least you know the market forces are, are coming home and yes and i agree you could have opec could do something even though we're less dependent on opec or you could have a refinery that breaks down or there's a hurricane that hits the gulf and takes out a refinery or some pipeline that has a problem so i understand that there's always those issues but at least for right now and i think you know candidly for the last couple of years you're seeing a stabilization of oil prices which i think makes consumers feel good Patrick in Fond du Lac. Patrick, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm well, thank you. That's good. Uh, Like I was telling your screener, I'm actually currently on Amazon right now trying to find more gas cans (laughs) to store in my garage so that way I can take advantage of these low prices because, you know, it's great right now, but I remember the days of four bucks a gallon and I hated it and I'm hoping to just take advantage of it. (laughs) Well, don't, don't, I mean, don't store too much in your garage there, you know, but no, I get it. No, right. No, thanks for the call. I get it. Okay. Here's my text. Jeff, stop saying gas is cheap. Cheap. The powers that be are listening. Now, I mean, there, there is, there is something out there that could potentially screw this up. John in Waterloo. John, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, John. Yes. I remember back when I graduated high school, and that was 1970, I guess I'll say, 18 cents a gallon. For regular, and then they had premium that was a little bit more than that, right? A little more, maybe a quarter. Right. Yeah, yeah. But my biggest thought right now is, hey, it's great that we're seeing this cheap gas but it's not going to last. Our new governor has already said $0.60 cents a gallon tax. Yeah, well, this is, I mean, you raise a really interesting point, John, because, and, and I mean, actually, and re- former Republican Governor Tommy Thompson made this one as well. If Right now, the gas tax has been frozen for a number of years. That's number one. And number two, we used to do what we call indexing of the gas tax, which was, it, and politicians love this, the gas tax would automatically increase every year tied to inflation. And so they, they didn't have to take those tough votes. Well, Tony Evers has said that everything tends to be on the road, on, on the line. And let's say, for example, that you wanted to raise the gas tax let's say from where it is now, 33 cents a gallon approximately, to let's say just 50 cents a gallon for the sake of argument, a 17 cent increase. It's a lot easier to sell that to the general public, I admit, when gas is 219 a gallon or 209 a gallon. So now you're going to raise gas up to 230 or 227 or whatever that's going to be. It's easier to sell that than to sell a 17 cent gas tax per gallon increase if gas is 350 because then it becomes 367. So I, I do think people have to watch out. If you, like me, are an opponent of an increase in the gas tax, you've got to be very, very careful because that's one of the downsides. Maybe arguably the only downside to low gas prices is you might have some politicians who say, all right, now is the time. Let's move in. Let's increase the gas tax because people won't care. They'll still be thrilled to have gas that's 220 a gallon. They won't care if 50 cents of that is a gas tax. Maybe, maybe that's true. 
but you're going to care a lot when, again, gas is three fifty a gallon to the extent it's going to be there. So be watchful. I'm sure there's lots of politicians saying, hey, we need to strike while the iron is hot. Now is the perfect time to increase the gasoline tax. We will discuss if that happens. It's 2.53 when we come back. John McCure is on vacation today. We'll find out what Scott Warris has on his mind. He's filling in for John on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. It's 2.53. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.